All right, great to see you today. It's a great day. Yesterday, the official start of summer, and then today, Father's Day. Great, great to have you here on Father's Day. And like a lot of you, I had a, I had a terrific dad that I enjoyed uh, all those years. And, uh, and then God blessed us with four kids, uh, four great kids who I'm sure, sure will be uh, pouring out amazing Father's Day gifts on me this afternoon. And now we're waiting on our 10th grandchild to come this fall. And uh, thanks. It, it, God's just really blessed us. I just, I just heard this past week or two the, about our four-year-old granddaughter, Riley, um, who's down in North Carolina. Her family's getting ready to move. They're leaving Fort Bragg in North Carolina to go to Fort, um, boy, I just lost the name, Fort Gordon down in Georgia. And, uh, and so she was praying and she was praying about her new room that she's going to have. And, and she said, God, help my room to be pink. <laughs> and have pink bubbles and all sorts of pink because you're all powerful. <laughs> it's like, God, I think you can pull this off. I think you can pull pink off. I think he may use her parents to pull that off. It's great being a granddad, it's great being a dad, hope you enjoy your day. And I know as a dad, one of the responsibilities you feel is to protect your children, right? I mean, it's not necessarily protecting them from every bump in the road because those bumps help them to grow. But as a dad, you're there to try to help them get past the big hits, right? Try to help them, provide for them, deflect for them those things that they can't face alone. You're their security. And that's also one of the great blessings we get when we come to Jesus. We get a father who provides security for us. And if you've had enough of the bad news, that is great news for us. We're glad to be continuing our series today where we've talked about some of the blessings that we received when we came to Jesus after all, the Bible says that as Christians, we've received every spiritual blessing. That's good to know. It's good to think about. It's good to talk about. So we've talked about the good news of salvation itself, the free gift that God's offered to us, uh, just purely out of his love, his grace, his mercy for us. Last week, we talked about the good news that God works all things for our good. And today, we're going to talk about the good news of his protection of us. We're gonna look at two different aspects of that protection. First one we wanna look at is what's typically called eternal, eternal security. That's a teaching that says when we truly come to Jesus, God keeps us forever, that our salvation is guaranteed and there's never an end to our relationship with him. It's important to talk about because for a lot of Christians, it's a, it's a common issue. They wanna know, are they secure in Christ? They want to know, is their eternal destiny guaranteed? And I know some of you, you hear that that's going to be the topic, and you're like, great, I love this topic. And then others of you are probably like, no way. <laughs> How can you believe in that? And you talk to the average person who disagrees with the idea of eternal security, and they usually bring up a couple of arguments, both of which happen to be directly answered in Scripture. But the first argument they bring up is they'll, they'll point out somebody they know, someone who was in the church, who was active in the church, said they were a Christian, fully engaged, fully involved, and then they did a 180 
for some reason, they, they, they left. They're no longer in the church. They're, no, they're living in sin. They made bad decisions. They became a Michigan fan. <laughs> and, but seriously, they, 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 they even say they no longer believe. It's all behind them. And then the question is asked, what about them? Actually, the writer of Hebrews answered that question. See, the way I see the book of Hebrews is written for two purposes. It was written to, to encourage discouraged believers who were looking at the struggle they were in and wondering how long do they keep going. And so the writer is writing and saying, hey, keep going in your faith. And the answer they give for that is because of the supremacy of Christ. He's far better than any other option. And the writer goes over and over that again, showing that he is superior, he's supreme. And so he's supreme, he's, he's a better option than Moses. He's a better option than the prophets. He's a better option, his sacrifice is a better option than bulls and goats. He's just better. So why would you go any other route? So follow Christ, keep following him. But then he also writes to answer the question about those who had walked away because that had happened back then. People who had been in the church had walked away. And, 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 and the Christians that are left there, they're like, what, what, are we, what, what about them? And so he answers that question. In chapter 12, he brings the answer to the question into real focus. And basically, his answer goes, he says, he says it's either one or two things. Neither of them are good news. The first option is they were never saved in the first place. They never came to know Christ. They may have looked like it, they may have sounded like it, but they never really trusted in Jesus. And then the second option, they did trust in Christ, they were Christians, and they still are Christians. And God is go going to discipline them to bring them back to himself because they're still his children. That won't be enjoyable discipline, by the way. God, out of love for them, wants to draw them back. And so he's going to, like a good father would do, he's going to discipline them to bring them back to himself. That's the two options. And there's not a third option. There's not an option given where they were saved at one point and then they're, they're not. So concerning that person that people will bring up to you, if you say, I, around a group of Christians, I believe in this teaching of eternal security, somebody's going to say, well... What about this person? I know, that, I know somebody like this. What about that? Our answer to that is we don't know. We don't know for sure where they are with God, but we know this. They either were never really a believer in the first place or they are still a believer and God will go after them because he loves them because they're his. But we also know it can't be that they were someone who was saved at one point and are no longer. That argument really doesn't work. And then the other argument they throw out goes something like, well, if it's true that we can lose our salvation, then we can just, we can't lose our salvation, then we can just go on and live any way we want. We can sin and it doesn't matter. It can't impact our eternal destiny, so let's just live life. And so they think because of that thought, the idea of eternal security can't be right. But again, the Bible's already answered that, that question. That's the question that 
the Apostle Paul answers in Romans chapter 6. In chapter 5, he makes the argument that we are eternally secure. And then in chapter 6 begins with, he's assuming the, the question that people ask, that very question. Well, so we could just go ahead and sin then, right? But he says this in verse 1, what shall we say then if we're eternally secure? Are we, to, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Hey, because we're eternally secure, do we go on in sin because grace is going to cover it anyway? And then he answers it in verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live it? See, when we came to Jesus, we died to sin. And I know, we all know that we still struggle with sin at times. We get that. You know, if you want to go on in Romans chapter 7, you can see the struggle that the apostle Paul had. So we get that sin can be a struggle in our lives, but sin is no longer our master. We no longer live for sin. And so the idea that a true Christian would choose to sin like it's no big deal, that isn't an option. So that teaching of eternal security isn't a license to go sin. That argument really doesn't work either. Neither of them work. And we could spend our time this morning going into the scriptures and looking at all the reasons why we believe that eternal security is a reality. There's a number of them. We've done that before. We're not going to do that today. I just want to point out one reason, and it's just this, very simple. Because it makes sense. It makes sense. That's the argument that Paul makes in Romans chapter 5. He's made the point in the first four chapters of Romans that we're sinners made right with God by faith alone. That's simple. We all get it. We're sinners. We didn't do anything to deserve salvation. We are saved by faith alone in God. That's what brought us peace with him. And then he says in verse 6 of chapter 5, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you notice in those two verses just the words that were used to describe us? Helpless ungodly, sinners. He goes on in verse 10 to call us enemies of God. I mean, this is not a pretty picture. That's where we were spiritually before we came to Christ. We were helpless. We couldn't do anything for ourselves spiritually. We couldn't improve ourselves in any way. We couldn't somehow gain merit before God. We didn't do anything that would make us more worthy of his love. There was nothing we could try. We were helpless. We were ungodly, we were empty of God, and, and contrary to him in our hearts. We were sinners, we were disobedient to his commands, and still, in spite of all that, he loved us and demonstrates that love for us by saving us, Christ dying for us. So God saved us, his enemies, through the death of his son. It's really overwhelming to think about that he would love us. Why would he love us at all, much less love us like that? It's so great. If we hadn't experienced it, it'd be hard to believe. But that's what God has done for us. 
God loving us when we are in this horrible state, loving us to himself. And then verse 9 says this, much more than, much more than, key words right here, much more than, if God loved me when I was his enemy, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved. Hey, he saved us. He loved us when we were his enemies. He loved us when we were completely unlovable. He loved us anyway and brought us to himself. That's sure. Every believer here understands that and knows that. We're convinced of that. God loved me. We couldn't be more convinced of that. But the Apostle Paul says, much more than, even more than that. Once you understand, his point is this, that he, if he loved me when I was his enemy, as sure as that love is, now that I belong to him, now that I'm his child, even more so, he'll continue to love me and he will save me ultimately when my life's over. There's never an end to his love for me. My salvation is guaranteed. I am eternally secure, much more than having become his child. Is there any chance now when he loved me as, as an enemy and brought me to himself and made me a part of his family, is there any chance that now Somehow, I've done something, and now he kicks me out of his family? Is there any chance that I lose my salvation? Is there any chance that I cross some line that goes too far? No. No way. In fact, he, if he loved me like he did when I was lost, the fact is, it is even more evident now that we will be saved, he says here, from the wrath of God through him. It only makes sense that now as his children will be saved by his life, we're secure. Since God the Son died for us when we were enemies, sinners, spiritually dead, in rebellion against him, how much more will he save from future eternal judgment those who are now in Christ, who have been credited with his righteousness? If there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, it only makes sense. It makes sense because of what he did for us. It makes sense because of how he does it for us. I mean, think about it. How powerful was his death? How powerful was his death? It was pretty powerful, right? I mean, he took, his death made the spiritually dead alive. That's some power, right? Well, if his death was that powerful, what do you think about his life? How powerful is his life? I mean, if he made the dead alive by his death, Surely by his life, he can keep those who are alive spiritually still living. That's what verse 10 is saying there, that having been reconciled to God by his son's death, much more we shall be saved by his life. Again, it only makes sense. Someone said, it's a greater work of God to bring them to grace than being in the state of grace to bring them to glory. Because sin is far more distant from grace than grace is distant from glory. 
that makes sense? God did this amazing, incredible work taking us from the point of where we were at to bring us to himself. And now this, the next step of bringing us to glory, this, to keeping us safe, this, this step isn't nearly as far. This is what he's guaranteed for us. It only makes sense that our Father has guaranteed our eternal security. And that's not some, just some doctrinal fact that we stick away in our head. It's not some point, just some point for us to argue about. It makes a huge difference for our lives. I mean, think about what great news it is that we are eternally secure. If, if, if this wasn't true, who's to say where the line is? You know, I'm walking through life and I take a step of disobedience. Did I cross the line then? Or do, I have to, do I have to commit another sin? Where's the line at? Who's to say? How do I know whether I've crossed the line and lost my salvation? How much sin is too much? How often do I have to sin? What step do I have to take? See, we would lose all confidence in our salvation if that was possible. And we should if that was possible, because we wouldn't know. Because if there's a line somewhere, I guarantee you, we would have all crossed over it at some point. Which is really terrible news. <laughs> because one of the favorite passages of those who be believe we can lose our salvation is in Hebrews 6, where it talks about people falling away. Those are people that we would say were never saved in the first place. But you know what else it says there? If you believe that a person can lose their salvation because they're falling away in Hebrew, from Hebrews 6, what else it says there is that they can never be renewed again to repentance, which means they could never come back to God. Wow. If it's true that I can lose my salvation, then it's also true that I can never come back to him. That would mean we would actually lose our salvation. We would lose all that God has given for us. We'd lose confidence. We'd lose hope. But instead, the fact that God saves us and keeps us, what a difference. There is no line that we may accidentally or even on purpose cross. Because as verse 20 in, here in chapter 5 tells us, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He just keeps covering us. See, we have confidence that we have a heavenly Father that no matter how many times we mess up, no matter how badly we mess up, He's still there waiting for us to welcome us back with open arms. It's like the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story? It's a, you know, the, the son leaves. He takes all the riches with him. He goes. He spends it all. He lives life like he wants. He's, he's living completely disobedient to God and apart from his father. And, so, and then finally he wakes up and realizes, well, this is not good. I should go back home. And so he turns and he goes home. And what happens? His father's there and he sees him at a distance. And what's the father do? He runs. He throws his arms around him. 
He welcomes him home. He throws him a party. It's all great. I'm going to tell you, that's, that's true of when we first come to Christ. We understand that if you're a believer, but that's also true. Every time we turn from sin to come to him, he's always welcoming us back. For the rest of your life, if you're a believer, you come back to him, you take a step of disobedience, and you turn to God and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I can't believe I've sinned like that. And what's he do? Are you, you know, does he, like, okay, are you serious enough about this sin? You know how many times you've committed that sin? Yeah, what's he do? He, he welcomes us back. That's the guarantee we have. Where our sin abounds, his grace overabounds. And if you think that doesn't impact how we live for the better, boy, you're missing out on just how good we have it. And you say, well, okay, I believe we're kept by God, but sometimes I doubt my salvation. Sometimes I just question it. You know, there's a difference between doubt and disbelief. Let me give you an example. Last week, Pastor Kevin uh, quoted uh, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a great preacher back in the 1800s. Um, and he started preaching when he was 19. He was a phenomenon. I mean, he, he, before there was such a term as mega churches, Spurgeon was preaching in them. And he, he preached to 6,000 people a week. By the time he was 27, he preached to 23,000 one Sunday. There would be Sundays where Spurgeon would tell the crowd, tell the people of his church, don't come back next week. <laughs> I'm not telling you that, by the way. But he, can you imagine? Don't come back next week because we want to let other people in the doors. One Sunday, 1879, he asked the entire congregation to get up and leave because there's so many people on the outside that wanted to come in. They did that. They, got, they emptied the place and then filled it again so they could preach. His messages were printed in newspapers and individually. He, his sermons filled 63 volumes, the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. There's still more material in print by Spurgeon than by any other Christian author. But Spurgeon, God using him so powerfully, but Spurgeon wrote this in his autobiography. Listen to these words. I felt at the time very weary and very sad and very heavy at heart. And I begin to doubt in my own mind whether I really enjoyed the things which I preached to others. It seemed to me to be a dreadful thing for me to be only a waiter and not a guest at the gospel feast. You ever been there? Spurgeon. God using him so powerfully, and yet he had moments of doubt. Doubt's not unusual. It, it usually follows some disobedience in our life. 
And God uses that doubt to bring us back to him. And you look at your life and you go, wow, wow, I just took that, I took that step of disobedience. I can't believe I just sinned like that. Does a Christian really do that? Can't believe I, I just blatantly thought that or said that or did that. I can't believe. And so we, we begin to look at our life. And you know what? That's what doubt should do for us as Christians. It should cause us to look at our life and examine our life. The Bible challenges us to examine our lives. But that examination should give way to confirming our relationship with him if we are really his. See, it's not God's design for his children to go around doubting all the time. How did John put it near the end of his first letter, 1 John 5, 13? These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you can know. So doubt may hit us at times, but God's design is for us to come to the conclusion that we are his And the fact is, if you've come to him, you will always be his. We are eternally secure. And I hope you are enjoying that reality. God wants us to. But the security that God provides for us isn't only regarding our salvation and eternity. It's also in our day-to-day lives. You know, when we look at Scripture, there's a lot there about God's protection for us. But I just want to point out one thought. Because it's Father's Day, think about this. There are three times where God is called not just Father, but Abba Father. They use that Aramaic term with the word Father. Once when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then two references that are in connection with our being adopted into the family of God. Romans 8 and Galatians 4. So we've got Jesus at a time of incredible emotional stress talking to his father, calling him Abba, Father. And then two times where we are told, both in Romans and Galatians, that we cry out, Abba, Father. Think about that. Why, 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 why cry? What's crying out have to do with it? Well, it's because there's a lot of emotion there. There, There's moments where we turn in tough times and turn to him. It also points, I think, to the closeness of our relationship. That's why sometimes the word Abba is compared to our term, daddy. It's like when kids are little. I I got to think about back when our kids were young. And at that time, they used to call me daddy. And they did that all the time. But there, as I sort of thought about it, I thought, okay, there were specific times that stick in my mind. Those tended to be times where either they were excited or they were scared or they were hurt. Those were the times that stuck in my mind. Times where there's a lot of emotion And in those times, there was something that tied us together. During those times of hurt or fear or excitement, they would run to me. 
That's what we're talking about with our Heavenly Father. That's because of the security He brings to us. So at times of distress or pain, we can run to Him. During times when the world around us seems to be falling apart, we can run to Him. During times when our own life seems to be falling apart, we can run to Him. And during all this bad news that's going on in our world, we can run to Him. That's the way it should be because it's there in His presence that we find safety. It doesn't mean we don't hit some bumps, we do, but it does mean that He's there through it all, providing for us in every situation. That's a guaranteed blessing that we get when we become His children. See, it's not true that everybody in the world's God's children. I know people say that a lot, but it's just not true. We are all are his creation. We're all under his authority. Everyone will be judged by him. But the right to be called a child of God and call him Abba, Father, is something only those who have turned to him by faith can do. We've been adopted into the family of God and we're redeemed from the curse of sin and we're made heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And because of that new relationship, God now deals with us differently. He deals with us as family, as his children. That's just great news to celebrate today. And talk about security. Knowing that our heavenly father is protecting us that nothing touches us that hasn't passed through his hands. It's so good. And we get to enjoy that on this Father's Day and every day for the rest of our lives. If you're tired of the bad news, that's good news to focus on. And if you don't feel like you've come to a point of knowing him, you've never taken that initial step of faith, of turning to him for forgiveness of your sin, of starting that relationship with him, we would be glad to talk with you about how in just a few months we're gonna close this service with a song. There'll be pastors back here in this room, right back here, room one. We would be glad to talk with you, answer, try to answer any questions you have about how you can start that relationship with him and know that you are secure. If you're a Christian, the good news is you're his, and you will be his until eternity. He will hold you as part of his family forever. And when you come to him, it's not just, oh, oh good, we get, to, we get to sh for sure to get to heaven. That's, that's true. But it's, hey, God's also walking with me through life, my Father. And I can run to Him when I'm excited, when I'm scared, when I'm hurt. I can run to Him and know His protection of me. good news to celebrate this Father's Day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, God, for loving us when we were 
ungodly, helpless sinners in a rebellion against you. You loved us and brought us to yourself. Can't thank you enough for that. And to know, God, that you're keeping us. Because if, if we were on our own, there'd be times, God, we know we'd walk away. Maybe not on purpose, just out of weakness. We'd walk away. God, thank you for keeping us, assuring us of our eternal destiny. Thank you that we know that we're your children and you'll always be your children until we stand in your presence. And God, I, I, I thank you that in knowing that as well, we know that you walk through every day with us. Thank you for that. You're there through all the details of life. Father, I pray for those that might be here today who don't know you yet. Father, that today they'd make that decision. They'd come to faith and they know what it is to walk through life with you as their father. Father, we thank you again for another day to serve you. Thank you, God, for bringing us from the point we were to, across the chasm into your family. We thank you for that, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.